0: Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Strava, and today, I have the exciting opportunity of sitting down with Josh Campo, who's the CEO of Razorfish. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to have you on. Before we get into all the questions that I have, why don't we just jump into your career journey? Can you take us through it leading up to today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. First, uh, thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, you know, my, my career journey. I started working pretty young, actually. So my my first like real job as a, a as a developer was around sixteen, um, and I started working for um, for the state government at the time. Oh wow! And. Um, and you know, I'd always been into computers. I was a bit of an army brat, so I think I tended to be a little antisocial. Yeah. Um but took to computers pretty quickly and just really loved, you know, I started off playing video games like I think a lot of folks do. Yeah. And then um some of those games wouldn't work on a computer. So then you were trying to figure out how to get them to work, and then yeah. from there it kind of spiraled into to actual development. Um but did that I yeah, I worked for the for the government for really about a, a year or two. Um, it was kind of my first real job actually. Um, I also, uh, got fired from that job. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, and I think it was, I was just very immature, right? Like I thought it was cool that I could, you know, figure out how to break into a, a system and yeah. then I would make a joke about it. They, they did not think it was as funny as, as I did. Yeah. Um, and so we just decided it was probably best to go our separate ways. And, um, and from there, I, I kind of got into a, a world of doing like freelance stuff for a couple of years. Um, and so I did some freelance development. This is kind of 98, 99, 2000.com was you know kind of taken off a bit there. So you could find a lot of work doing. I was doing a lot of PHP type programming. And, um, you know, I went to T University. I went to Boston University and a, and a startup opportunity came my way. Um, and, you know, I was, what, 18 years old and. Seeing all these people get really rich with their dot com startup ideas, yeah. Hey, that sounds good. I'll I'll drop out of university. Um, so I dropped out, joined a, a startup called GoEdit. Um, did not strike it rich. <laughs> um, so it ended up being pretty poor timing because that was right about the time that the dot com bust happened. Right. Um, so you know it, it was a, a learning lesson. You know I spent a few years in that world. Um, And I got a lot of exposure to some great people. So some angel investors um, really got my, my first mentor out of that um, who was a a former CIO at at Bell South um, and really pushed me. Like I never would have thought about doing things like investor presentations and meeting with angel investors to raise money. You know, I was very, I was a developer. I I wasn't supposed to come out of my my closet here. Um, And so he was actually one of the guys that really pushed me on that, and so developed a, some more comfort in speaking in public, those types of things. Um, but ultimately, just it was not the right time, um, and so went from that to um, needing to find another job. And that same investor decided to, to start up a small consultancy, and so gave me this opportunity to join him there. Um, he was, you know, super intelligent, but very kind in how he asked me. And I was also like, I don't have any other job and I, I need a job. So <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I'm all in on it. Um, so we ran a, a small consultancy based in Atlanta for a few years. Um, and at some point we, you know, had the, the idea to create a, an offshore near shore office in, in Romania. Oh, and cool. so um, I had some contacts um, to to connect me out there so we went out there uh started an office and you know sure enough was, as we actually got some clients that were interested in using us for that um one of them stipulated they wanted local management to be there for the first six months of the engagement in romania wow. and so that was for me it was a huge opportunity i was like great i will i will absolutely go to romania for for six months um hired a bunch of developers um and really kind of got immersed in this, like, how to start a business in a foreign country. Yeah. Um, and, you know, six months, it became, like, one year. And then after one year, it became two years. And so then it became five years. Right. Uh, so I ended up living in Romania, running that office for about four and a half, five years, and then had a had a side hustle, which was I also opened a bar. Um, oh, cool. While I lived over there. And so that was... We, we did a lot of team events and I was kind of like, well, hey, if I had a bar, we could just do team events at my my bar. And that, that felt like it could be interesting. Um, and it was a really great experience, like having the bar. You, I actually learned a very different side of like operating a business in a foreign country. When, yeah. you, you know, when you're a software company, you're kind of this international entity in a way. When you're opening a bar, you're very local. Um, and you and you kind of get ingrained in the culture in a very different way, right? Um, but it was a great experience. Um, but yeah, after like four or five years of that, I wanted to work with larger clients and get kind of bigger enterprise experience. Um, and so, felt as a small consultancy, you know, your options are a little little limited in terms of clients that will hire you. Right, you're having to be like the subcontracting entity. And so, made the decision to to come back to the United States, and that's actually when I joined Sapient um, back in two thousand and nine. I think, yeah, um, joined Sapient, still in technology. Uh, remember, like I, I worked on a, I was brought in to work on a financial services client um, for a SharePoint implementation, which. I, feel like I don't hear about SharePoint implementation. Yeah. Right um, no, especially as a CMS. Um, so, <laughs> uh, but that I was brought into that. It was a, a fixed time, fixed price project. And I yeah. think it was like six months past due. Um, so, it was a, a delight. Um, but it was yeah, like fire. I learned a ton. Again, like it's just like it was, I think in the first months I flew to India um, to meet with the team there, learn how Sapient did like estimations and how they viewed. Um, they kind of like overall philosophy of building, um, software projects and, you know, was in technology for a few more years at Sapient. And then, um, you know, I worked closely with, a, another friend and mentor of mine, which is Jim Ripley. Um, and he, he kind of had this idea of, Hey, why don't you go into client services? Um, and I often joke that I felt like he had, he went out to dinner a lot. That seems like fun. Yeah. Um, you know, who knew there was a lot of work attached to everything else he was doing, but like, that's what I saw. So it sounded exciting. Um, and it felt like a different way to use my technology background, um, like take that knowledge, but also have different strategic conversations with clients. Right. So I kind of jumped at that. Um, and, you know, that was around the time that you know, we we had won a large relationship with Ralph Lauren, uh, which became a multi-year engagement. And that was in that was incredibly challenging and exciting, but that was kind of the, the beginning of my shift into client services. Right. Um, and then uh at that same time, Publicis came along and, and bought Sapient. And so um basically they bought Sapient, you know, felt like nothing changed for like a year, and then all of a sudden things were changing quickly. Um, and they formed Sapient Razorfish. And that's when i also transitioned into running the the combined samsung relationship for sapient razorfish and at the time rosetta as well and kind of bringing that under one umbrella right um and led that team for quite a few years and i would say that also really pulled me even further into the digital marketing world um, which i think I didn't start out anywhere in this career thinking I would actually be in digital marketing, yeah. um, but I love this like intersection of, that's where like technology comes into play. That's where the business strategy and the sales come into play and the experience and the creative side come into it. And so that was Absolutely. a pretty exciting time for me. And then, um, you know, I think in 2018, 2019, 2018, I, I actually decided it was time to try something else, leave publicist for a bit um, I really only left for ten months uh, before ending up back at Publicis. yeah, um, and and that's really what brought me to to where I am today, which is you know leading Razorfish for the past three and a half four years, um, and it's been you know the experience of a of a career of a lifetime. Like I've I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been a little bit of some days were like a startup, yeah, um, some days were a fully matured organization, and I think you know every day there's some new challenge, and it's just been incredible to you know, bring something back into to prominence like a brand like like razorfish, but also to go through like the challenges of you know three months in, COVID happens. Um, yeah. Not exactly what we thought. And then to kind of see everyone persevere through that, it's been a, it's been a heck of a journey.
0: Absolutely. I, I immediately want to jump into, you know, the first kind of place that you started, which is having a, a, a job with the government doing technology work at 16. I kind of have to unpack that and understand how that happened, right? Because I certainly wasn't qualified for anything other than manual labor or paper deliveries at 16, right? So I need to, how does that happen?
1: I'm going to guess, though, you were probably, you had probably a lot more friends than I had. Um, (laughs) You know, I I think it just, you know, my, because my family, we moved around a lot. um, And I think some people like take that and they become like social butterflies. Right. Um, Other people take that and they're like, I just won't bother making friends and I'll just be kind of an introvert and, and, you know, focus inward. And that was, that for me was what it was. I just got into, um, programming and I got into computers really big. And that started probably at like seven years old, six years old. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember studying to become a, um, I don't know if you remember this, there used to be this networking platform, Novell. Um, and, you know, I became a certified Novell network administrator because I thought that would be cool. And I remember yeah. just reading the book and that was probably like when I was 12 or 13, I was
0: That's wild. That.
1: Um, and, you know, it was like anything I, I ultimately, My parents did instill in me a very strong, you know, you know, work ethic um, and a little bit of a, you know, you got to get a job, you got to make money, Um, especially if you want to do that whole college thing. You're going to need to pay for that. Um, So I I think it was just, hey, I know how to program and Like I I knew a couple people who were connected to the state government and that's how I, I, that's how I got the exposure to the opportunity. Got it. Um, And then. Yeah, I, I'd signed up originally. I was going to be a, uh, a network technician. Um, turned out they didn't realize I knew how to program. And I knew how to, at that point, code with ColdFusion, with PHP, and a few other Yeah. Things. And they're like, well, if you can do that, why don't, why don't you just, you should be programming. yeah. <laughs>
0: Like, yes, yeah, that'd be
1: great. I love it. So,
0: Well, what's, what I find really interesting about that is as you describe yourself defaulting to more of an introvert uh, as a result of moving around and, and, you know, kind of inherently what felt comfortable for you. Then once you get to college, right, and you see the opportunity to take a huge risk, like stepping away from college and, and going into a startup environment, right, in, in kind of that exciting time that almost seems like the antithesis to, you know, an introvert, right. In terms of that sort of risk, putting yourself out there. Right. And, and working in like a really intense collaborative team environment, uh, you know, where everyone has to disproportionately add value to what you're building.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like back then, um, I remember thinking like there was no risk, like,
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Like, and and it was, I mean, I was wrong, but, but I, I think my headspace back then, and, and when I say like intro, is just, I just wasn't very social. I wasn't very socially inclined. Yeah. Um, I do think I understood a lot of different like aspects about business and, and and technology. But I think in my head, it was like, I could spend the next four years here at this university. And I was, I was doubled up into management and computer science. Right. Um, I felt the computer science courses were so like, it was just like, what is, it was very much it was beginner stuff, and I was just like, "I, this is a waste of time. Yeah. I could be making money right now." And, yeah. that, and I think that was literally my process: of, I could be making money, and you know, if I if I look at what's happening out in the world, I could be making millions of dollars, like right. you know. And so, yeah, I need to drop out and, and do it. Um, and it just it didn't feel risky. And later on, it felt very like very risky. Like like um, you know, fast forward a couple of years when you're kind of coming to grips with the idea that this thing that you dropped out of university for is not working out. Yeah. Um, and then you begin to wonder like, oh my gosh, what have I, what have I done? Um, yeah, you know, am I going to be employable? Am I, what, you know, and you know, the economy was not in a great spot. Um, and so there were moments then that were, I would say I realized it was a risk and unfortunately it was a risk that hadn't played out. Um, but I, you know, I had help, you know, like I mentioned the, the the mentor that kind of came from Bell South he was incredibly helpful yeah um, and also helped me build like confidence it took a lot of years to have the confidence to be pretty open about the fact that i dropped out of university like oh interesting um, you know, for a long time it was like i hope nobody asked me yeah Yeah. You know? and, and you know it just it took a while to get over that
0: that's very interesting and, and, and i and i wanted to talk about that experience with that mentor and kind of w- I think it's very easy to now, hindsight being twenty twenty, reflect back and and recognize how much you learned, how many skills you developed, how you know public speaking in front of executives, you know, and all those things that you had to do um, to to drive that startup effort forward. Obviously, being incredibly transferable and even an accelerant in kind of your abilities as a professional down the line. But in the moment, w- were you aware of those things being as valuable as they were? No. Um, I don't think so. I mean, I, I remember him
1: telling me to do, I, I remember very specifically, there was this one angel investor conference, um, in Atlanta. I, I can't remember where in Atlanta, but and him being like, you're going to do the presentation. Yeah. And I was just being like, no, I'm not getting in front of a bunch of people. He's like, you have to get in front of a bunch of people. And I was just adamant. That's not my job. I, I, I'm, I'm coding the back end. You're yeah. supposed to talk about stuff. You're, you're the one that finds money, not me yeah um, and he's like you have to do this like you, you're you understand what we've built so you can articulate it best to the investors and it will be real if i talk about it i'm just selling them something whereas is you understand it very deeply because you've coded it and he was right but like at the time i was—I mean i was pushing back and i was, I was just i was terrified um, yeah you know and it's one of those things when you're speaking you know and you're not quite comfortable you feel like every little shake you have is just incredibly visible. Um, And in reality, a lot of people, like, it's almost like micro movements. People really can't see all of that normally. Yeah, Um, But I was so – I was convinced everyone was seeing me just, like, shaking. (laughs) They were up there, and I was just – it was terrifying. But, you know, I did it. Nobody laughed at me, um, and nobody called me an idiot, and, you know, nothing – traumatic happened. And, and he was like, see, yeah, now you'll do the next one. And, you know, pushing. And, and at some point in that, I started realizing, you know, he was really helping and pushing me. But I think early on, I, I think it was just, I just thought he was a, a smart person who was a bit of a difficult manager in certain ways.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting though, because in the way that he pushed you, right. And while in the moment that could have been maybe challenging to, to get that sort of, um, I guess, aggressive kind of thrust into that sort of situation. But I think kind of the skills that developed obviously, and now as you reflect on it, the value that it introduced, but it, it pulls me to a topic that I've had on here a couple of times that I think is really interesting. Cause you always hear this idea of like all roads leading to sales at some point, right? As you kind of get more senior in a career, you're going to have to have those skills. You're going to have to be able to sell your ideas or a technology or product or whatever the case is. And so, you know, myself, not necessarily as technical as as you, right. But I also started uh, in in the world of data, right, early on. And now I'm in strategy and consulting at Publicis Sapient. And we, you know, I still specialize in data strategy. And I always have that to fall back on as like this area of expertise, that's your words, make what I say real and genuine and concrete, right. And then so it's interesting, because I'm now striving to develop management consultant level, executive storytelling, or building and telling skills. Whereas as I'm interacting with my peers in management consulting, they're trying to develop more concrete expertise. And I find this interesting you know, cr- crossroads where we're crossing the same bridge, but from different directions. And I'm curious about your opinion of, as somebody is building their career, having an area of deep expertise to always fall back on and almost that T shaped kind of, um, professional development. What is your thought on that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's increasingly more important. I I wouldn't say it's an absolute, you know, I think there's, there's some people who are just such effective communicators or, you know, managers in that way that like, that is all they need. Um, but I do think particularly in a services business, um, if you have a depth of a skill or background, it gives you some credibility when you're you're talking to folks, and I think that's always been useful for me. Um, you know, most of our clients know that I have a background in technology. They they find that interesting when we get into marketing conversations. But then also, how do we take these conceptual conversations and make it real? They give me a little bit more trust on that because they know that I understand. Like it's not it's not magic that we're doing. Right. Um, there's actual ways to build things and I can figure out like what that would take. And I think it's, I think it's helpful. now sometimes that's technology. Sometimes it's um, creative or it's some specific domain from a data science point of view, all of those things. I think it's helpful. Um, And I do think just the nature of the world is getting so complex that you need something that grounds you, from that skill point of view to, to be able to kind of advance and move forward. Um, I do think that the flip side of that is for me, the thing that I think most inhibits people's growth though, is it's less about sales, but it's communication. Right. Like I think of people often say, Oh, you're good at selling something or whatever. And I, I would actually step back and say, it's not selling. Right. It's communication. And like, I think the ability to, Give an executive level presentation and all those things comes back to your ability to communicate effectively to a specific audience. And I think right. that's something that I more often than not see as the inhibitor in someone's kind of career tra- trajectory.
0: That resonates deeply with me and something that I've echoed on here a number of times. And um, I am curious though, as you kind of describe the. R- Individu- the the complexity of today's world kind of almost necessitating to have some sort of grounding in technology just to understand how the world works right regardless of what your actual role is, but I also see for example from a CIO standpoint um, out in, in different industries that increasingly more CIOs aren't necessarily let's say engineers but they're finance people with a pension with an understanding of technology right and they're helping. How to manage the technology for an organization as a business asset, right? And, and extract value out of it. But I, I know conversely, you have a perspective around kind of what the role of, let's say, the CMO is of, uh, uh, and today and how it's evolving. And I think I'd love to unpack that a little bit because here you have historically a role that's not technical, but now marketing is entirely dependent on technology and, and to do it effectively at scale. Without technology is impossible. So, so how has that role evolved, or will it continue to evolve?
1: I mean, I think the the CMO role has gotten just vastly more complex. Yeah, um, I, I I kind of feel like twenty years ago it probably was more fun, because um, <laughs> you, know, you know you were you were oriented towards kind of big awareness work, right? Yeah. And, and you were coming up with very you know creative campaigns, and you were thinking about the brand in that sense because you didn't have the tools to be more precise and to target your consumers more effectively, to drive sales and attribute the revenue there. And I think now a modern CMO lives in a world where, um, they all have the data, they know the sales, they know their consumers and, you know, nobody's got an attention span beyond like three seconds. Right. And so living in that world, it's tough because they are being held accountable for sales. It's no longer, you know, did you did you lift your promoter score? What's your what's your your brand right. uh, stats saying about you, right? It's, no, what were sales last quarter? Right. How many units did you drive? How much conversion did you do? Um, how many repurchases did you drive? And so it's much harder to be a CMO today. And if you don't understand some of the technology of it, right, you don't necessarily have the ability to connect everything together. And that comes back to, you know, we talk about, for years now, omni-channel experiences. Well, that's a series of connected systems that we're talking about. Exactly. Um, and if you if you understand even a little bit of that, you begin to be able to picture how a consumer's journey plays out, and and how you need to be thinking about converting them along that funnel or that journey. And so, I think it's it's helpful when they under, when a CMO understands the technology side, not at a detail level. They don't need to help programming any of this. Like, but when they understand the platforms and how they play absolutely can can connect that to the possibilities of a brand because you still have a creative side to this job. Um, And it manifests more to me as experiences today than it does as messaging. Yeah. Um, And I think that's exciting. And I think that's another pivot from like the job, maybe 20, 25 years ago to today, but it certainly is. I think, I mean, I feel for our clients. It's a much harder job than it, than it used to be. Um, just as the CIO's job, by the way, is a much harder yeah. and arguably very risky job.
0: Um, right. And, I, and, no, and and just as you're articulating, for example, the different platforms needed to, to activate these experiences, bring to life how they're all connected. Right. When we compare uh, CIO to CMO and marketing organiz- organization versus IT organization, the line of ownership and scope of ownership of what technologies is, is so different depending on the client and the industry, et cetera. But more and more, a lot of those technologies sit in the marketing org and are owned by, right. In terms of activation platforms, that's a huge shift and that's a massive skill set. you know, to, to be able to understand how to manage those or at least manage the people who do.
1: Yeah, it's a, it is a massive, sh- I mean, I also think that this is where you get into, you know, most client organizations in our business uh, have been around a while um IT used to be like the the AS 400 down in the basement that was cracking out some reports
0: yeah and,
1: and marketing was you know sitting up on a floor with some creatives coming out with a, a new campaign that's gonna probably run in the newspaper um and I think you still see those organizational remnants when you look at a lot of org- a lot of a, cl- a lot of clients and the reality is, you know, a CMO can't know everything about technology and a CIO can't know everything about marketing. Right. Um, but real transformation can happen when they can authentically partner, right? Right. And where they see each other as in service of right. each other, as opposed to, this is my territory, that's your territory. Don't touch the tech, don't touch the marketing. Yeah. It's kind of actually, no, you both can be so much more better for the business if you truly partner up and, and let go of some of the, the kind of siloed thinking. And I think this is where, when you look at organizations like Publicis, that's where you see a lot of powerful work coming out of Publicis, right? Is is where we we step away from the, you're a creative agency, you're a digital agency and you're a consultancy, right? Yeah. When we actually kind of show up as just, hey, we're Publicis. And some of us are sapient. Some of us are Razorfish and, and some of us are, are Starcom or Leo Burnett. But, we let those names kind of fade away, you, you see magic happen on the work that can occur. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's where it's like, hopefully clients continue to evolve in that direction as well, because it's an enabler for us to do more interesting work.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And and having witnessed and been part of um, the opportunities inside of Publicist, like you're articulating, when when you shed the titles and, and organizations and you just, look at each other as the best group of people to to solve the problem, right. Then, or, or to capitalize on the opportunity, that's when suddenly you have powerful collaboration. But I, and I think that collaborative spirit, right. As is like a core characteristic or trait of people who are successful. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and just as you've articulated there, it's, it's obvious. And so, you know, I think also as, as a, as a, when we're talking about these executive roles, the CEO role has become much more challenging. But before we start to talk about kind of your experience in this role, I want to go back to your time in Romania just because we might get too far away from it to circle back uh, if we keep going. But I suspect that as you were, you know, building out an office and being an office manager there and scaling that business there from a technology standpoint, but on the side, running a very local business in an entirely different space and industry that probably broadened your general management capability in such a massive way that, that, that set you down a path that you probably wouldn't have been on otherwise. Yeah, for sure.
1: I mean, I think like that, that the bar experience was, uh, it was bizarre in so many ways. Um, But but it was also the biggest thing was like, you know, as, as someone who was a technologist and, you know, knew how to manage, you know, a few developers and that kind of thing like that was all very like, par for the course it was different language different environment the running of a bar was one part like fantasy right like i feel like at some point every guy i know is like i want to own a bar one day i was like so i'm gonna make this fantasy a reality and then you're like oh, that's a lot of work like figuring out vendors and how you get people paid and like you're you know you're living by the night sales in terms of if you're going to make payroll tomorrow morning um and that side of it from a business point of view and a problem solving perspective, I think it was great. Cause it was just a very different set of problems. I think for me on the other way to think of it is like, that was where I feel like I was able to practice not being an introvert. Yeah. Um, and in a relatively little risk way, like I'm feeding people a bunch of drinks. They're not going to remember anyways. Yeah, um, And you know, like I, it it gave me somehow like a safe playground though for me to like try and be like, I have to start up conversations. You can't sit behind the bar and you can't own the bar and not talk to your customers. Right. It's not okay. And then, you know, we got a little bit of, we became known as a foreign owned bar. Right. Um, And what that would do is at this time in Romania, there were a lot of other expats kind of coming in as a part of other businesses, investing in the country. And there was an airline like Wizz Air that had us featured in their airline magazine. Oh, that's cool. And so (laughs) foreigners would just walk in and be like, are you Josh? And I was like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, Oh, I'm just moving here. I was like, Oh, okay. So like, it was like a great way to get connection. And then it turned into a way to drive, um, generate new business opportunities for the software company. Yeah. Um, because people would show up in the country be starting something up. They didn't know what to do. They didn't have a team. And I'd be like, well, I have a team. I can help you, and like, whatever. And so, it really sharpened like all these different like social skills, kind of new business thinking. On top of that, you know, making cocktails and all of these yeah. things that go, go with it, and then like balancing and thinking about the books, or you know, in a technology company, we don't really think about like theft that often, right? Like, right. You, know, you know, you have to think about like. Why, why are there so few bottles of, of something left? And, and right. how are you managing shrinkage and all of these different aspects that are just totally out of category? So it was a great experience. Um, I would say it wasn't the most profitable experience, <laughs> um, but I did break relatively even on it. Um, yeah. So I, I count it as a success uh, If for no other reason. It's like it also it, I had the business for two and a half years or so. Um, that bar ran right up until some point last year, um, which, which I had like a a point of pride around that it lasted that long, um, even after I was gone.
0: No, it's very cool. And I, and I always like to double click on people's side hustles and explore them in these conversations just because I personally run a nonprofit, um, organization. It's a basket, it's a, a basketball training academy and prep school here in the Toronto area. And it is similarly completely separate from anything I do in my professional life. It requires me to talk to people that I'd never interact with in my uh, professional life. It is an intersection of my passion for the sport of basketball and kind of my skill sets in business and in strategy and so on. But it, it develops skills and develops empathy and communication abilities and flexes all those. And that was like a very intentional reason why I was open to building this in the first place six years ago when I started it. And it sounds like you had the same intentionality on some level with with your experience with this bar, and, and and that brings me to this idea of like being very intentional in the types of experiences you pursue to develop yourself and stretch yourself. And it sounds like that that you echo that sentiment.
1: Yeah, I do. I, I think um, I think we all start off a little scattered in terms of what we're going to do to better ourselves and, and get ourselves to the next level. But I think at some point you have to suddenly get very intentional because. Yeah. You don't have a, you don't have a lot of time, right? I mean, especially now we all work so many hours. Um, so you you need to focus in on like what is it you want to do next? Or what, what do you want to improve upon? Um, and I think whether that's you know side hustle pursuits, whether that's even thinking about where you spend your vacation or where you invest your free time, um, I think intentionality is just super critical on a journey of kind of career success and, and what right. you want to do. Yours, by the way, is much more noble than mine. I mean, I literally opened a a drinking spot, and yours is a nonprofit. So let's. let's Yours sounds much more noble.
0: Yeah, I I mean, it was never built on on the premise of nobility. It was solving, you know, a problem in the basketball community and in the areas of Toronto. Um, But uh, I appreciate that, and I am proud of it for sure. but I mean, on that note, right, then now pulling us back to your career and, and once you returned to the U.S. and you entered Sapient, then you had pretty aggressive growth from there. Right. Yeah. And, and that was obviously accelerated by your expansion of your, your scope of, uh, I guess, of, of, of focus and control from just technology and, 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 uh, and software and development to that client services role, which, again, another mentor right? So now we have two pivotal mentors that pushed you in directions that you otherwise maybe would not have gone. Um, and from there, right, the growth was, was significant and, and quick. So like, how did you con- manage to to be successful continuously, one, two, manage that massively increasing scope of, of, of responsibility, and then continue to find time to learn and grow outside of just on the job?
1: Um, I mean, I think... When you zoom out, like if you take the past, if you, if we go to 2009 to now, so it's been 14 years, um, when you zoom out, it kind of looks like a continual trajectory of of success one after the other. Um, it was not, um, there were were problems in there. Um, and there were certainly setbacks that, that happened. I mean, throughout my entire career, not just having failed startups, but I think it's how you roll with those. You know, Mm -hmm. I think, um, Failure is going to happen in anything you do um, and setbacks are going to happen in anything you do. And it's about kind of taking that and saying, okay, now I'm going to get back up and I'm going to roll on. And then I think what you where you end up is you zoom out and you look at it and it looks like it was just this perfect little arc going, going up. Um, but it, it, it's not that way. I mean, I think that for me, I remember um, just coming in, having a mindset that, when I started at Sapient that I was going to, you know, jump into any fire I needed to. Um, and that really has been a big part of like the career development for me is kind of running into, if there's a problem, I'll go to the problem. Because I, I think those create career growth moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, if everything's going well, there's not a lot of opportunity for you to like improve things and be seen by that. Um, If things aren't going well, there's an opportunity for you. Um, And so even from that first project that I was on, um, which, I mean, it was such a great experience. It was this client, it was um, Allianz, uh, an investment bank, um, came into it, got to know the clients very well, built a relationship with them. You know, and we started off, you know, we eventually launched the site we were supposed to launch. It was late. It was a poorly performing business for us. But because we had built a relationship with them, we got the work afterwards. And then the business became profitable for Sapient. And it actually started to do work on time for Proliant, So it was great. And, you know, you take that into the next relationship that you have and you start building upon that. Um, But, you know, I think once I was through that fire, it's like, okay, well, what's the next fire? And then the next fire was, you know, I was, again, talking with with Jem and he had this, it was another fixed time, fixed price project. Um, that was overdue. And yeah. Was great. I'll, I'll, I'll go into that. That actually provided the opportunity to live in India for about five months. Um, so did that, but it's like, kind of, you go to those fires. And I, I think that's where, you know, that's how you create an accelerated growth. Um, and you know, I think this gets asked by me, to me by a lot of our junior people like, well, what should I be doing in my career right now? You know, two or three years in what I did, and it's not what everyone necessarily wants to do is I looked for the problems. I just looked yeah. for like, Hey, where can I go help? And it doesn't mean you know how to solve it, but we all have Google now um, yeah. or we have chat GPT or we have Bard, or whatever. So like you can almost find the answer to anything that you don't know. Right. You just have to be willing to look for it and willing to, to step into it and take the risk. Um, but, you know, there's been, you know, thinking of kind of setbacks. You know, I think that I'll, I moved into client services. Um, I will say when I moved into client services, I was probably a little overconfident. Um, oh, yeah, we'd won the Ralph Lauren uh, work, which was one of our like largest opportunities at, at Sapient um, in years. And so I was proud of that. And I was coming in doing it. And, you know, when we're in client services, you know, every week or every two weeks, we talk about our portfolio and, right. and where it's performing and what, what it's going to do for the business uh, that quarter or in the next quarter. And, you know, Jem would run these calls. I would join and, you know, I'd always be like, yeah, we're doing really well. We're doing really well. And, you know, at some moment I had just gotten distracted and we got on the call and, and it was the, after the end of the quarter... And we had definitely missed the number I had said we were going to hit. Right. And he was not happy. And just was like, it was like, I had really let him down because those numbers got turned in to the next level up, the next level up. So basically it trickles down how bad yeah. we've missed. And when you were running a large business, it's a large miss. Um, and just, you know, you took... He delivered a bunch of feedback on that call. I had people call me afterwards and like, Are you okay? Like, kind of like thing. Um, but, you know, it's like, Yeah, I'm okay. Like, look, I screwed up. And that's okay. Like, we learned, we moved on. And I can tell you, even now, I'm very fervent about knowing where everyone's numbers are going to be. Right. Um, because, you know, that was seven or eight years ago. I'm not going to let it happen again, though. Um, and so you just encounter these things. And I, I think that I've kind of lost the, 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 the que- the original question, but I, I think the overall, I, I think it is you. You have to jump into the fires and lean into them. Yeah, and you have to expect that you're going to mess up, and, and that's going to you know feel bad, but you, you have to move on pretty quickly from
0: it. There's a lot of stuff in there that really uh, that really resonates with me. And, and I, I've always had the same mindset of looking for areas of greatest opportunity for impact, which is the same, you know, different words saying the same thing of, of looking for the biggest problems to solve or the biggest fires. And you know, for a long period of time, right, you know, especially as like a senior associate manager, I was just like a mercenary getting airdropped into problems. Right. And and there is it, exponential and accelerative learning that happens in those moments. But I never really saw them as risks, kind of now, you know, maybe mirroring your mindset going into the startup, but because I always looked at it as I'm already going into something that's broken, right? So yeah. they're not going to blame me for breaking it. And if I can't fix it, well, I've tried my best and it was a really tough problem, right? Exactly. Um, and so I always found comfort in that. But then I kind of saw the glory on the other side of the coin of like, if I could solve this problem, right? Imagine what they would say. Right. And so, and, and so that has been a certain, certainly a driver for me as well. So I would absolutely echo that. And I mean, that the, the, the evidence is obvious, right, in terms of the growth that you had. But then I, I am that, that type of setback, like you just articulated, one that is entirely your own, right, and that you have to own and does have like a ripple effect and has a magnitude, right, to it. It that, that I think that's a really powerful thing to experience, right? Because it, it also, uh, you know, in, in the moment, depending on the individual, that could be earth, sh- earth shattering, right? In terms of ex- having that sort of, um, you know, misstep. But at the same time, it, if you harness that effectively going forward, right, you have a totally different approach and mindset around navigating that type of misstep again, or how to coach others to navigate them. And, you know, have you found that going through that experience now as a leader of an entire organization right where you've got people in the position you were in 7 or 8 years ago does that experience in your back pocket help you coach people through it more effectively yeah. now
1: yeah i think it does i mean i think it's also i think it's really important that people that leaders understand their people well enough to know what will create a teaching moment versus a crushing moment um, and I and I would say you know like in that moment that I had, Jem knew exactly who he was talking to. Right. Like he, he knew me very well. He knew exactly like how I would probably process and take that. It was not a risk in that. I think we also have to acknowledge some people will react differently to that. Type of course. Of that. And so I think, well, it's it's certainly that specific experience has informed, and I I give people the watch out. When I, you know, when they come onto the team and they're responsible for a, a PNL, we have a conversation around no surprises. Um, you know, bad news is not great. A surprise is horrible. Right. Um, and so we, we we have that conversation and and try to, to to leverage that with folks. But I do think it's it's important to just tailor that message to whoever, and it, it's not about different levels of seniority is just different personalities react different some people are really motivated when you call them out yeah um, other people would would be more authentic in trying to resolve a, a challenge if you called them up one-on-one and had you know an honest feedback conversation but not not somewhere where they're gonna feel like they're called out or they're attacked right um, so you have to think about what's more motivating for those individuals as, as part of it
0: yeah, and that's no different than flexing the same skills to be able to adjust your communication style to an executive versus a working level individual on the client side, right? I think it's the same skill set, but one that's layered with an enormous amount of empathy, right, and understanding of the person on a bit of a different level. And I think that's super important as you try and ascend into people leadership in your role. I think, I think with leadership in general, right? You kind of spoke to it. In the time that you've been at the helm of, of Razorfish, there's been wild disruptions to our lives uh, on this earth, but then also just in the landscape of how we work, right? Whether it was COVID back then uh, and or the onset of, of an entirely new form of generative AI and how we interact with AI today, right? I think what I'm really curious about is for you as a leader, navigating moments of total ambiguity because i think the kind of probably what you share is transferable to navigating them as a manager on a project uh and those are they're, they're totally universal i would imagine but how have you navigated these immense kind of disruptions and and then especially now as we kind of all collectively try and find the path forward of how to harness the power of of, of ai right in in the way it's kind of taken shape how what are you doing to navigate that successfully
1: yeah i mean i think um look, uh, unknowns and and like where there's significant change. And I think it's AI is a, to me, it's a very opportunistic change. I think COVID was a very unfortunate of course, um, uh, change, but I think, you know, both of them is, is a little bit of like stay calm. You know, I, I think that like, whenever we see these massive disruptions um, and disturbances, it's kind of like, you know, to step back for one minute and take a deep breath. Yeah. Look around. Understand it. You know, COVID was, nobody knew what was going to happen during COVID. And, and I think we, you know, I remember we got on like um, calls with all our people and they all wanted answers. Um, and there's a moment there where you just have to be like, yeah, I don't have them. Yeah. We don't know answer what I can, but we, you know, here's what we do know and stay calm with that. You know, with AI, it was a little bit interesting in a different way is, you know, I think Danny Mariano and I were were sitting in Chicago or Miami um, and talking about this year and what we needed to do in, in 2023 and, and AI. Like we, she and I had been very focused on some Web3 things last year. And, you know, it was very clear by like October, November, AI was going to be critical this year. We just didn't know how it was going to be critical. And we both share an opinion that AI is gonna be transformative for specifically you know, the digital marketing industry and for the creative industry. Um, and I think it's probably incredibly risky to deny that. Right. Um, but we also need to get people excited about it and, and engaged with it, in part because we don't know the future. Right. And so in a similar moment in January, February of this year, we had our kickoff for the year and we were talking to the whole company and we talked about AI. If you look at that deck where we talk about artificial intelligence, it's actually not a lot in there. It's it's mostly like provoking and teasing out thoughts so that we can get 14, 1,500 people excited to begin engaging it so that they can figure out the future. Right. Right. And I think that's what we started to see through the course of the year is it's not about us coming up with all the ideas, it's about us permissioning and unlocking people to be able to go figure those things out. And I think that's when you think about that uncertainty in those times of change. is It's not about having the answer, it's about having the, the calmness and the freedom to enable people who can figure out the answer. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing on AI as, as a good example, because our people are coming up with ideas. You know, I think in the early days, it was like, well, could we do this? Could we do this? Now we have people coming to us saying, could we do this for our client? Can we do, can we leverage AI in this production workflow? How do we think about AI and, um, and and using it to, to reduce the shots of, of, for shoots and these kinds of things. So it's like you, you've, we've, we've started the snowball down the hill, um, which was all we really wanted to do. We wanted to get it going. And now, now what we can do is we can kind of use that and we can curate into it what makes f- sense for us as Razorfish, as an enterprise, what makes sense on a certain client basis and what do we want to be a mantra. But if you take that back to navigating is some of the things around navigating change have less to do with what you as an individual leader think it means versus how you enable others to operate in that environment.
0: I think what's really interesting about that is you know you often hear that a big unlock for people along their career progression is when they're when they have the confidence to recognize they can't do everything themselves anymore right and they need to begin to delegate and then having the trust in in your team to delegate and offload the the decisions or pieces of work and you've articulated that at a scale of a ceo right and and entrusting that to the entirety of an enterprise right but i'm curious was there a point in your career Where that transition was realized on a more micro level when you were starting to kind of rise and and gain seniority, or or were responsible for more and you were realizing, I've got to let go of some of these things. Otherwise, I don't scale anymore. Yeah, I I, I think I
1: actually have to say it's probably happened multiple times, Um, (laughs) you know, and even in my current role, like you have to remind yourself to delegate. Um, you won't get everything done, right? But like, there are things like you'll see it, and you'll be like, "I know how to do that, so I'm going to do it myself." Um, and it feels good, yeah. You're like, but then you, I I use this oftentimes with with PowerPoint, right? Like, because I can get very picky about the way slides look, and I'll just I'll do it myself. It's fine. I know the town hall tomorrow. I'll do the slides tonight, which is a a ridiculous statement. Um. And it makes everybody nervous, right? Because they're like, "Well, is he going to have time to do the slides? And if he's doing the slides, what else is he not doing?" And right. you know, it doesn't make anybody feel better except me in the moment. Um, and I think we all fight that, right? I think you. I think we all have, especially when you have these, like, coming from a data background, right? You, you know how to do some, some, some work that other people in your current role maybe should be doing for you. But you're always going to be drawn that and tempted to it and be like, well, I could just do it myself. And you have to constantly fight that urge. And it does take trust. And I think that's, I think you kind of hit it there in terms of delegation is you have to trust your team. Yeah. And you know what? They're not going to nail it every time. And that's okay. They will get better. And you, what you have to have trust in is that they're going to do their best. And that when they don't hit what you want, they will listen to you and they'll do better, but you have to start with that trust. And that, that to me, as I go back in my career and I think that has been one of the hardest things and it's something I relapse in all the time. Um, and I, I just encourage people to like, really try to lean into that delegation. Yeah. Because, you know, communication is I think the most important, but if you can't delegate effectively, you can't scale. And if you can't scale, you're just an individual contributor. And that's really okay for a lot of people. But if you're looking to have larger impact, you have to scale,
0: um, which means you can't just be an individual contributor. Absolutely. And even hearing the way you talk about trust, it uh, harkens back to a conversation I had with Pascal Hudaie, who's uh, the CEO of Orvion Global. And he talked about the fact that he starts at implicit trust, with the people he brings onto his team, with the people that he works with. And that is a massive accelerant to like getting good work done. But that's like, that takes an enormous amount of confidence, right? And you're to, to start with implicit trust or explicit trust, right. And total trust and, and then let somebody prove you wrong. Right. Or right. There's risk in that. And I'm curious about your thought on that. Yeah.
1: It's risky, right? It's like for me, like, it's course. easy for me to say that I have explicit trust with all of my my leadership team now, right? But I've, I've been working with them for a few years. Um, if you if you rewind three and a half years ago when we all just first started working yeah. together, there's no way I could have honestly said that, right? I, I didn't know half of them. Um, and I was new in a role. And I, I mean, I admire yeah. that concept because I think it's probably right in terms of how to approach it, yeah, but you're gonna have to be really, really comfortable in your skin for it because, you know, you you typically, you know, in my case, I was coming in new to the role, back at the organization, different half of the organization, yeah. new team. So a lot of that new team was like, "Who are you, anyways?" Um, and to sit there and be like, "Look, I trust all of you to just you're gonna do what the right thing is," um, and I'm not gonna micromanage it. I did not do that. I wish I, I wish I had, but like I know I didn't. But I think it's a huge step. I think it's actually, it comes back to as as a leader as you develop and you build confidence, yeah. you should be able to do that, right? You 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 need to come in and and again, it's, is everybody going to hit the mark? No, but you know what? Probably eighty to ninety percent will. Right. So those people didn't get to be on your leadership team by accident. Right. You know, it's like, those people are all there for a reason. this It's, it's nothing I often tell people when they're in their they're kind of not junior, junior, but like middle part of their career. Like everybody's afraid to say something in a room, just say it. Right. You got hired. You were put in that room for a reason and you have every right to say something if you have a thought and, you know, that's true for anybody that's on on a leadership team it's true for anybody that's in an organization that values performance and i would look at yeah. a lot of places in publicis sapient razorfish like orient that way right very right. performatory if you're there there's a reason Speak up and then the flip side is if you're there then i should trust you to do the work right
0: right but but it is a difficult thing i think to to gain it supreme confidence around um but I, I greatly appreciate your candor and describing kind of your approach to it. Um, I think that in itself, uh, as, as a leader, having that kind of candor and transparency is, is, is I think a powerful tool because it certainly humanizes and level sets uh, you uh, to, to kind of the people in your organization. And, you know, from here though, I'd love to, you know, maybe take a couple minutes to to tackle one more area just in terms of your perspective, and you mentioned you you played video games. I certainly grew up playing video games, and I still dabble, right? Uh, and, and but for folks who did, the idea of like physical and digital realities merging, coming together, evolving, right, is not new because we've seen digital worlds become go from eight bit, sixteen bit, thirty two bit to like indecipherable from real life in some versions, right? Uh, and, and even more so now with AR and VR. But you know. In terms of the collision of physical and digital, in the way that's been happening with Web3 and blockchain, and what I'm sure generative AI will unlock now, or AI in general, and its more commercial applications, right? Where do you see some of that going? Because it's going to have a huge impact on how we interact with brands, on how we interact with products, right? And and what a product or brand even means anymore. I'm curious to understand your perspective on that.
1: Well, I mean, I I think, you know, particularly when you you start to look at like younger consumers, um, like, you know, we're doing a lot of work to understand gen alphas. Um, And I think, you know, the sense of what is, you know, what is a thing is very different, right? You know, it's, you know, having a digital pair of Nike shoes, is on par with having a real pair of Nike shoes um, when you get into those younger generations. And I think that begins to inform, like we have, you know, I have a very kind of hard view of, well, that's a virtual thing. That's a game. Right. And even when I'm wearing like a, a a VR headset, I'm, I'm I'm in a game right now. Um, And you, you better, I'm not going to pay 50 bucks for my game character to wear some like nice sweatshirt. Um, but that's very generational, right? That, that just speaks to the fact that I'm a bit older. Um, uh, and so I think what we begin to see as we go forward is a, you know, objectism or, or ownership of things will shift. And that drives a very different consumer landscape that, you know, value will be placed on virtual things as much as they are placed in, on real things, which means ownership is important, which is also why I think that, like blockchain technology is so Critical, and I think you set aside some of the the ups and downs of the past year and a half here of NFTs and what's going on. It's right. The underlying technology that's actually interesting, um, and it creates this chain of ownership, which allows to have the notion of digital scarcity, which means things can be real in, in their value. Right. Um, so I think that all begins to create the the foundation or the infrastructure for this convergence of values of physical and digital being held in a very similar way. Um, and I think other things need to happen though. So like, I I, I do think when I think about AR VR, it's incredibly clunky. Um, you know, I I think if you're committed to trying it and playing around with it, it's cool. It's fine. I mean, I've, I've, fought zombies in a VR world and I've, I've smashed my hand into my desk and it hurt Yeah, so bad because I thought I was wielding a sword and I thought the zombie was going to get me and I, I just like bruised my wrist, my, uh, my wrist, it hurt, but that's how convincing it was. Um, the issue is I got to put on this like five pound helmet um, and it, it's just not a good experience. And I, and I think that's where as those evolve and we come back to it, um, I think we get to a place where the virtual or the AR VR experience is not inconvenient, and that's where I think what we'll have is this this you know futuristic world where you know you walk into a retail environment. If my AR glasses looked like my real glasses, yeah, I could be seeing all kinds of dynamic experiences going on with that brand that create a whole different level of engagement, and it would be personalized, right? And all of that. You know, the computing power to do that is, has really only just now gotten here. But then there's the idea of how do you process the data? And that's where I think the AI comes right. in, is right. the ability to really think about one-to-one personalization, not just a segment, not just a what do all bald men that live in Connecticut, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but real one-to-one. It, it takes a lot of processing power and cognitive ability. And I think that's where the artificial intelligence comes in. Uh, it'll actually enable those experiences, and I, I can't wait. I think we're really close to to this. Like, I, I feel like it's in the next four to five years. I think we will begin to see some radical changes to retail environments. Um, I think we'll see radical changes to kind of yeah. entertainment forums. Not that you think that's like stadium type things, but also like how does mini golf change uh, and like all of these go-karting those types of entertainment forms how do they change as a result of it i think we're we're, we're close we're just it, it just needs the technology and the experience needs to get a bit better right um and i think we need that gen alpha age group to get a little bit older because I think once they get a bit older their buying power will force brands to engage differently um and i think that will be interesting i think some brands will win incredibly well when that
0: happens yeah absolutely and Their buying power, I think it's both sides of the coin, their buying power, but then their contribution to the thinking as part of the workforces that are gonna shape these experiences and build them, I think is gonna be hugely transformational. Because to your point, their understanding of what digital and physical mean and the value of something in either space, is totally different than ours. And I sit kind of in the middle of what you described uh, uh, uh for yourself and what these folks in general gen alpha um perceive and you know i can make arguments in either direction right and that's the, the interesting thing so i'm p- particularly curious to see how it all shakes out
1: i think we'll see a return back to the value of digital goods but i think what we'll see is less less scams going on with it right you know i, I think there's um all technology right trends they have to go through this kind of the hype the hype life cycle of course, which includes a bit of scamming going on and then you come back and it's much more real. And I think I'm just waiting for it to have that like much more real sense and and hoping that it's going to be, We're talking about like months
0: and not years and years. We're still shaking the sieve, waiting for all the gold to kind of to to surface, right? Absolutely. (laughs) But I mean, (laughs) uh, as we kind of close that idea, you know, I I, I'm sure that anyone listening inside of Pupusa's group is incredibly exciting for kind of the future you described in terms of its impact on their. their jobs and their roles in, in the organization, but then also for folks outside of the organization listening and understanding how it's going to shape the world around them or for their brands and their organizations. Um, it's, it's very exciting. And, and it's also been incredibly interesting to kind of hear through your career journey, how you've kind of grown and, 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 and become the leader that you are. And, and I think your candor, your, your empathy, your transparency has been hugely valuable for anyone listening. And and really appreciate you taking the time to chat. This has been awesome. I look forward to having you on again in the future.
1: Oh, I hope so, Peter, it's been great. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, we need to make sure we, we get out and connect in person next time I'm, uh, I'm in Toronto or you're in New York. Absolutely, it's a deal.